right, let's do Leviticus chapter 10. If you would, uh, if you got one of those note sheets, obviously never a requirement, but you can see one side of it is the priestly warning in Leviticus chapter 10. This is what we didn't have time to finish last week, so it only takes up half the page. Um, and then on the back side of that, we're going to do an introduction to chapters 11 through 15. And we'll pick up chapter 11 uh, starting, starting next, next Wednesday night. So we'll, we'll do that. We're going to start, though, in Leviticus chapter 10. So I think I picked the one that doesn't go. Oh, that's going to annoy me for a long time. So you guys, uh, many of you know that I really enjoy golf uh, to, a, to a pretty dangerous level. But uh, I, in golf, if you don't know how it works, each hole has a score called par that the, they say an average golfer, they really mean a really good golfer <laughs> is able to get par on a hole. If you do one better than par, it's called a birdie. Um, so every once in a while, things will go well, and, and you'll, get a, uh, you'll get a birdie. But like a lot of golfers, I suffer from what is called post-birdie syndrome. Um, so here's how post-birdie syndrome works. You score a birdie on a hole, you do really well. And you know what happens the next hole? You are, yeah, if you're lucky, it's a bogey. <laughs> like, uh, if it's not a double or a triple bogey. So, uh... Just like the moment between one hole when you got a birdie and the next hole when every, everything falls apart. Now, I'm going to tell you a little something about my personality. It's dangerous. I'm working on it. You, you think I kid. I, I really am working on this. This is, this is something you have to be so careful of. I, the way my personality works is if something good happens in life or if things are going well, you know what I tend to think of? It's about to fall apart. Like something negative is going to happen. In, in my mind, if something good is happening, we just figure something bad's about to come. I don't know if it's like a learned trait in life. You experience enough situations like this that you just start to, you start to feel this. And you're like, oh, everything is going great. I can't even enjoy it because I know something probably is going to come. That's going to be really, it's going to be really hard. Remember, remember how Leviticus chapter 9 ended. So, so back up, Leviticus chapter 9, verse 22, Leviticus 9, 22, Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. In many ways, this is one of the most glorious moments for the people of Israel in, in their history. And this is a marker, an incredible moment for the people of God. Q Revelation 22, the story's over. God's glory has come. Everything's good. Huh. Chapter 10, 
verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Verse 2, fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. This is the word of the Lord. Ooh, those are hard verses, aren't they? So here is this moment of powerful worship. And you see the, you see the connection between fire at the end of chapter 9 and fire at the beginning of chapter 10. This is why, best we can, anytime we study a passage of Scripture, it's always just good practice to back up and see what came before it, to see these connections. Because if you read the beginning of chapter 10, disconnected from the end of chapter 9, you're not going to see the way that fire holds both of these stories um, in, in tension. And so fire comes at the end of chapter 9 to show God's glory and power, and the people fall down and worship. And then God's fire is going to come as what? Judgment at the beginning of, of chapter 10 here. What's going on in chapter 10? Nadab and Abihu, who are the sons of Aaron, who have just gone through this ceremony in, in chapter 9. They've, they've participated. It's not like they got left out of what happened in chapter 9. They've, they've gone through this. Each took his censer in, in verse 1 and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered English Standard Version goes with unauthorized fire before the Lord. What do other translations do in, in that verse? Strange. Yeah, that's a very famous phrase there. I'm sorry. Profane. That's a good choice. Yeah. What, what translation is that, Phyllis? New King James. Does original King James do profane as well there? Does anybody have original King James? or What? Now, that's fascinating. They went from strange in the original King James translation to profane in the new King James. Huh. Interesting. Um, so, yeah, profane, strange, unauthorized, not given by the Lord, <laughs> not commanded as the Lord had called them to do. And so they offer this before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. On your notes, four points from Leviticus 10. Uh, one through three. First, is you see this pattern of the next generation straying and facing judgment. Turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. Uh, so if you're not extremely comfortable getting around in your Bible, this is what I would say. You're going to go to the right to get to 1 Samuel. You're going to go past Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then you get to 1 Samuel. Uh, we're going to go to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. 1 Samuel 2, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man would offer sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling, 
with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Verse 15, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the man said, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Just starting there for, uh, stopping there for a second. This is another time where you're glad that you've studied Leviticus up to this point because you know why it's significant that the fat was supposed to be offered to the Lord and not kept for the people. It was the best part. It was this part that was to be handed over to the Lord, and now they're wanting to, they're wanting to keep it for themselves. Verse 18 um, is where you get the story about Samuel ministering there. Now go down to verse 22. You go down to verse 22. It says that Eli was very old. And he kept hearing, that, hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Okay, small preacher comment at this point. I didn't formulate this beforehand to say it correctly, but here's how I would say it. One sin seen maybe in public affecting something happening usually reflects another sin going on behind the scenes. In other words, it's usually not an isolated situation. Now, there, there are times that, that that's the case. There, there absolutely are times that's the case. But usually when you run into a situation where a person is caught maybe in an indiscretion, a, a relationship that's not marriage or they're caught in some situation with money, most of the time you start to look into that situation, and that's not the first time, and it's not an isolated situation, and there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes. The more I hear about stories like this, the more we realize that it's these small things that build up and begin to take over our lives, and it's not just one random event that shows up, that there are things happening. You get this idea with, with Eli's sons. I'm wondering, just for a moment here, if that crackling is coming from this random series of text messages that I'm getting here. Make sure it's not a... Uh, not an emergency, emergency for my wife. My daughter wasn't feeling great. So, okay. Chapter two, verse twenty-three. So Eli says to uh, to the sons, "Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man." God will mediate for him, but if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. And now the boy Samuel, though, continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. So you have this scenario here of Eli's sons moving away from the way they were supposed to, to offer uh, sacrifices before the Lord. Now here's the intriguing thing. If you notice there on your notes, you have Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who we read about in 1 Samuel 2 through 4. But then, if you turn over to 1 Samuel 8, look what you find when you turn over to 1 Samuel 8. So 1 
So God rejects Eli's sons, and he raises up Samuel. But watch what happens in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the kings who shall reign over them. First Samuel 8 is a very famous passage there. As you see the transition happening from the period of the judges to how God will, will give the people a king, which doesn't turn out nearly as well as they had originally hoped, though God redeems that, that whole situation there. So again, Samuel had a chance to see what happened with Eli and his sons, except he turns around and the same thing happens with his sons. They were dishonest, they gained, had dishonest gain, they took bribes, they perverted justice. Um, this is the idea that they were in it for the money instead of being servants, it seems like. First uh, Peter 5, when it talks about the way that the elders should act in the church, is that it's not greedily, not gaining for self, but the way that we serve others. Um, and, and Samuel's sons were, were not doing that. We would already talked about Aaron's sons, Nadab and, and Abihu in Leviticus 10. You have the story in Acts 5 of Ananias and Sapphira, so the church is growing. Here come two people out of the church who disobey the Lord in regard to money, and, and they face judgment. So there's this pattern that happens. What do we learn from this pattern? One thing we learn from this pattern is just a reminder that we cannot save our children, that that, that is a work of the Lord. But we can lay a foundation for, for that to happen. Now, we don't know exactly what happens uh, how Eli and Samuel functioned as parents, how Aaron functioned as a parent. So this is not a parenting seminar. Um, in, in fact, I don't even think these stories reveal a whole lot about that. But what it does remind us is there uh, is a call upon parents not to let kids just find their own way. You have Deuteronomy chapter 6 that is very clear about the word of the Lord being spoken in the home. There's there's no theory in Scripture with parenting of just let your kids find their own way, figure it out themselves, adopt whatever ideas they want. That, that is not a theory of parenting that's found anywhere in Scripture. We are called to guide. We are called to have the gospel be central in our home. But at the same time comes this reality of we can also not force our kids to follow the Lord. Um, and, and many of you have told me stories of, of what that looks like to live that out as parents. Um, I'm right in the middle of that. And there is a 
honest fear factor that comes with that. A trust in the Lord, for sure, but a fear factor that's involved with that as well. Of God, we want your word to be core in our home. We want the gospel to be displayed in our home. At the same time, we realize we cannot force our kids to do something. We, we can't save them. And so you do see this pattern that, that happens here. Um, and and you, uh, it brings you back to that reminder of, God, I'm going to do exactly what you called me to do, but ultimately I'm trusting that, that you'll be at, at work in these kids' lives. What's happening in this situation is a situation of disobedience. Uh, Twelve times in chapters 8 through 9, the leader did everything God commanded them. Then in chapter 10, verse 2, it says, When they took this uh, fire, the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. Uh, oh, at the end of verse 1, I should be looking at the end of verse 1. They, they offered this unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So up to this point, they've done exactly what God commanded them. At this point, it explicitly says they did what God had not commanded them to do, which led to the fact that they failed to treat God as holy. If you look in verse 3, it says, Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. You, try to, you might be tempted to say, what's such a big deal about the fact that they offered their own fire before the Lord? In a way, it was saying, we can come before the Lord and worship him however we want. Which is, what's at the root of that? Pride. This idea of God says, this is how you're going to come to me. This is how you're going to worship me. And they turn around and say, no, we'll do it our, our own way. They are not upholding God's name as holy. Remember how the Lord's Prayer starts? Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 says the Lord's Prayer. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That God's name is set apart. That God's name is holy. That his ways are not our ways. He has given us the way to be made right with him. He's given us the way to live for him. And when we don't do that, we treat his name as unholy. Now, a little preview of Sunday morning coming up. We're going to talk on Sunday morning about what it means to be a holy church and how as part of a holy church, we can't allow sin to grow up in the church, to grow up among the people of God, because when it does, it begins to spread. Why does God, this is a chance to kind of talk back and, and, and just kind of talk through this, but why do you think God deals so severely with Aaron's sons at this situation, um, at, at, this, at this moment? Why do you think he deals so severely? What do you think? Were you going to say something back here? I cut you off. Oh. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I think, it, I think the type of offering is certainly wrong, this idea of offering unauthorized or strange fire. It probably has as much to do with the timing 
of the situation, though, as it does the sacrifice itself. Because here they're at the very beginning of offering their sacrifices. And so if they do this at the very beginning, the next person is going to say, well, I can, I can do whatever I want. And the next person is going to say, I can do whatever I want. And so it had to be cut out at the beginning or otherwise it would have become a pattern. Um, so either God establishes a pattern of obedience or he establishes a pattern where the people say, well, I can do whatever I want to do. And so at the very beginning, God has to make clear that the pattern is going to be obedience to him, that there's only one way to be made right with him and has to cut out any, any other option. So I think it has as much to do with the timing as it does the, the sacrifice itself. Um, number four, there on your, on your notes, a strict judgment for a strategic moment that God judged them because it would have become a pattern. I like this um, quote from the commentator, uh, Mosley, at this point. When God stops our sin, it is an act of mercy. Um, think about that for a moment. That when God allows a sin to continue, it feels like, oh, look, he's letting us do what we want. But the, you can see the danger in that because it becomes what? A habit. It becomes a pattern. Uh, so in, in sports, in high school, and I'm sure it goes beyond high school, but coaches would tell you one of those things that you didn't actually believe, but you wanted to believe them. When they yelled at you and got on to you and corrected you all the time, they would say, I'm doing this because I care. You're like, no, you just want to pick on me. Like, that's the, no, no. Like, and they would say, we had coaches that would tell us, if, if I'm not getting on you, if I'm not correcting you, it probably means I gave up on you. Or it probably means I just don't care for you. But because I love you, or you've done this for your kids, like, I, I'm disciplining you because I love you. Uh, sort of goes along with the, this will hurt me more than it hurts you. <laughs> You're like, oh, no, not really. But, uh. It's that same idea of if I really care, if God really cares about the worship of his people, he can't allow this type of behavior, this type of pattern to, to continue. And so he steps in here with, um, with this judgment. And it's very clear from the rest of chapter 10 that both Moses and Aaron uh, get, get the idea. Let me divert just for a second before we talk about chapter 11 just for a moment, or just do an introduction chapter 11. So the last couple of days, I was in uh, uh, Dallas at a church down there called Prestonwood Baptist Church. Their pastor is a, a man named Jack Graham, and so he actually pastored in Hobart, and then he pastored in Duncan, down where I'm from, and then he ended up at First Baptist, West Palm Beach, Florida, uh, and then in 1989, came to, uh, to Prestonwood there in, uh, there in Plano, there in Dallas. And so every uh, couple of times a year, Prestonwood will bring a group of younger pastors in just for encouragement, training, trying to, to connect us together. And this is, a, this is something I've noticed a lot um, lately is the desire of these guys who have pastored for a long time to intentionally invest in the next generation of pastors. Uh, and, and some of this is coming, not directly related to this, but indirectly related to this idea, oops, 
this idea of investing in the next generation because they realize that the work they've done for the Lord and the work they've done in churches can easily just pass, pass away if they're not intentional in investing in the next generation. Um, and, and I think I've already told you that when Mark Clifton, who is the church revitalization specialist for North American Mission Board, when he spoke at the Union Baptist Association pastors meeting recently, he said that for churches that are declining or dying, the number one strategy or part of the number one strategy for revitalizing those churches is to invest in the next generation of leaders, that you're, you're raising up those who are going to step in into those places. And so what I want to say to you, Emmaus, in this is this is something that I think we do well, and we're going to continue to press on. Uh, Jim and Jaron and I uh, had a meeting a couple of weeks ago with another local church about how do we develop in our church a good young leaders training program, an intern-type program. I don't know what exactly it's going to look like, but even, even at my age, uh, where I am early in the game, I already see this need to begin raising up younger leaders that, that are going to come into place. And I think a church that stays uh, vibrant, a church that continues to reach people, a church that continues to make a difference, is a church that's just continuing to invest in that next generation of leaders that, that are coming up. And so we saw, that, uh, we saw that on display at Prestonwood the last couple of days. Uh, Dr. Graham has already identified the guy that's going to come in behind him and they're building him up and they're already reaching behind that guy and building up the next group of people that are coming in and so when you see this situation we don't know exactly what's going on obviously with with Aaron and his sons what's happening in their home but when I think about my home and when I think about our church I do think about we have to think about what it looks like to pass on the baton so to speak to the next generation um, and, and that begins, begins even with me. And so I want you to, to know that. I, I hope that's the tra trajectory of our church um, in the years to come is to continue to make those, those type of next generation in investments. So let's look at chapter 11. I want you to see the transition that happens in chapter 11. Just a quick introduction. And then we'll come back and actually do detailed work next week. So chapter 11 Verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, speak to the people of Israel. That seems really small, but um, that seems really small, but you see a transition that happens in chapter 11 that's really important. Up to this point, up to this point, the first 10 chapters of Leviticus are addressed to the leadership. There's one small section in the sacrifices that's addressed to the congregation about sacrifices they would, would offer, but even that is really addressed to the priest about this is how you do the sacrifice. So everything up to this has mainly been specialized instructions. In chapter 11, there's a very particular transition of now you're going to speak to the people about how they're going to live. So not just about the sacrificial system, but how they're going to live on a day-to-day -day basis. The, the, the principle here is that how we worship leads to how we live. Those two are not separate. We don't worship one way and live another. Those two are completely integrated. And so 
There's 10 chapters here about worship. And then chapter 11, verse 1, speak to the people of Israel saying, these are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud, among the animals you may eat. Verse 4, Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud, or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. Now begins that portion of Leviticus Leviticus is famous for, where you get these series of laws and you think, oh man, I know that has something to do with my life, I'm sure, but, but what exactly does it have to do with my life? And so we're going to save that detailed portion of this for, for next week. It is interesting that when he begins to speak to them about their lives, the first thing he deals with is what they eat. Um, just the most basic element of life, God begins to speak into them and say, I'm going to guide you in how you do this. So it goes from these acts of worship, these offerings, to what the people eat. Um, let's see here. Let's talk about this for just a minute, what, what we need to understand. So on your notes there, introduction to chapters 11 through 15. First, he's speaking to the people about how they're going to live, daily living. Number two is this idea of distinguishing holy and unholy, clean and unclean. Let me see if I can explain this in a way that that makes sense. So in the Old Testament law, in the book of Leviticus, you have two primary categories, holy and unholy. A better way, I think, to say that is holy and common. When you hear unholy, you think automatically sinful, but you've got to put that language aside for, for a minute. It doesn't mean sinful. It just means holy, as in those things or people or times set apart to the Lord, and common, everything else. So two categories, holy and unholy. In this unholy or common category, you have two subcategories, clean and unclean. Once again, as much as possible, you have to take away this idea of sinful and unsinful because it's not always the case. Sin has to do with with these actions of morality. Unclean has to do with ritual language, uh, states of being. If you've been in different cultures, sometimes they will see the area inside their house one way and the area outside their house the other way. They'll see certain areas as being clean and unclean. So your kids see their room <laughs> one way and the rest of the house another way. They're, they're set apart. They're different areas of space. And so on here, we've, we've talked about how there's holy and common, and under common is clean. So, so think health. Um, think healthy, or, or maybe a better way is to think access able to access this, able to take part in this. Unclean or impure doesn't always mean sinful, but it does mean don't have access to it or not allowed 
allowed to have it. So there's a great quote there by Wright. Ritual cleanness from the kitchen to the sanctuary was meant to symbolize God's greater requirement of moral integrity, social justice, and covenant loyalty. He was teaching them what he required of them so they would know how they were supposed to live. On this spectrum, you go from impure to pure to holy. To make something go from impure to pure, you had to cleanse it. To make it go from pure to holy, you had to consecrate it. Going in reverse, when something is profaned, it moves from holy back to pure. When something is defiled, it moves from pure back to impure. That's what I was trying to accomplish with that weird little graphic that I put on there. The reason this is going to matter to you is when you read in verse 11, uh, not verse 11, in chapter 11, verse 4, the camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. I mean, everything in us says, what makes the camel unclean but these other animals clean? Well, you have to think about it in this ritual-type language. Unclean simply means not access to, not healthy, not, not allowed for, for the people. So it's a category of common in the unclean, impure part of, of that category. So as we go through these laws, this type of language is, is going to be important. On the bottom of that paper, just a couple of comments. We've talked about this before. I wanted you to have this, not so we would talk through it, but just so you could take it and, and, and refer to it. But when you're trying to figure out how to interpret the Old Testament laws, we're going to follow this, this pattern, this process of how do we read the law in a way of understanding it's helpful but translating it, interpreting it for our lives. There's, an, there's a particular way of doing this where sometimes it's just like, well, you keep the moral part, but you don't keep the ritual part. Um, that's difficult to do because it's hard to figure out in the law what counts as moral and what counts as ritual, what's moral, what's civil. civil. And so we're going to have to work through that together. But I do want you to know this. God takes worship seriously. He takes the holiness of his name seriously. And the way we treat his name and the way we approach worship will impact the way we live. That's the lesson that goes from the end of chapter 9 into the beginning of chapter 11. God takes worship and the holiness of his name seriously. And how we worship and how we treat his name will impact how we live. Now we're called to live in a way that brings glory to his name. Let's pray together. Father, as we continue to work through Leviticus and see these different pieces come together, God, we pray, just like Jesus taught us to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. God, we pray that in our worship, in the way we live our lives, and things as simple as what we eat, God, that we would treat you as holy. God, I pray that as we think about parenting, as we think about grandparents, as we think about what it means to invest in the next generation, Father, we are desperate for your power in our lives. God, we come humbly before you with those prayers for kids and grandkids. God, thank you for the ministry that happens around the building on Wednesday night to our, with our kids and grandkids. And God, we pray that that would match what we're doing right now in homes as well. 
Father, continue to guide us as a church. God, raise up generations of leaders in this place in the years to come. God, that you would use us in that way. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.